0: Someday, Liz, I'll go back, said Private First Class Peter Robert Zanetta of the 37th Engineer Combat Battalion and first assault wave to hit Omaha Beach. I'll go back and I'll see it all again. I'll see the beach, the barricades, and the graves. Those words of Private Zanatta come to us from his daughter, Lisa Zanatta Hen, in a heart-rending story about the event her father spoke of so often. She tells some of his stories of World War II, but says of her father, the story to end all stories was D-Day. He made me feel the fear of being on that boat waiting to land. I could smell the ocean and feel the seasickness. I can see the looks on his fellow soldiers' faces, the fear, the anguish, the uncertainty of what lay ahead. And when they landed, I can feel the strength and courage of the men who took those first steps through the tide to what must have surely looked like instant death. And like all the families of those who went to war, she describes how she came to realize her own father's survival was a miracle. So many men died. I know that my father watched many of his friends be killed. I know that he must have died inside a little each time. Lisa Zanatta Hen began her story by quoting her father who promised that he would return to Normandy. She ended with a promise to her father who died eight years ago of cancer. I'm going there, Dad. And I'll see the beaches, and the barricades, and the monuments. I'll see the graves, and I'll put flowers there just like you wanted to do. I'll feel all the things you made me feel through your stories and your eyes. I'll never forget what you went through, Dad, nor will I let anyone else forget. And Dad, I'll always be proud through the words of his loving daughter who is here with us today a d-day veteran has shown us the meaning of this day far better than any president can it is enough for us to say about private zanatta and all the men of honor and courage we will always remember we will always be proud we will always be prepared so we may be always free.
1: GlobalRecon.net, giving you the matter of facts. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I wasn't, uh, initially, I didn't plan on recording a separate introduction for this week's podcast. But uh, just a couple of days ago, on April 29th, First Lieutenant Weston Lee uh, was killed when he stepped on an IED just outside of Mosul, Iraq, while conducting security as part of advise and assist support to partner forces northeast of Mosul. First Lieutenant Weston Lee was an infantry officer assigned to 1st Battalion, 325th Infantry Regiment, 2nd Brigade Combat Team, the 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, First Lieutenant Lee joined the Army in March 2015, and following the infantry basic officer leader's course, he was assigned to the 2nd Brigade 82nd Airborne Division as a platoon leader. Um, he, you know, his his death is going to leave a huge absence. And um, a lot of people are affected by it. Uh, there's a really good guy, Army veteran, on social media. His pages sure jumps a lot on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, You can check him out. He is currently at Dover Air Force Base awaiting uh, the return of Weston. And he's going to be escorting his body home. And then they're going to announce on his page uh, the dates for when Weston is going to go to Arlington National Cemetery. And we are encouraging everyone, if you can, uh, take the time out of your days to when the date is announced, to show up and support the family and you know, support Weston. So, Sir Jumpsalot has created a crowdfunding page on ucaring.com. You can go to ucaring.com and just search for Weston Lee, W E S T O N Lee, L E E. I will also have the link for this in the podcast notes on my website. So, once the, the podcast goes live, you can go to my website, globalrecon.net, uh, click on the podcast, and the link will be there at the top of the page. And, you know, if you can donate, donate. Uh, this. The money is going straight to the family. And they're going to, the Army is taking care of the family. So we don't want to have any misconceptions. But uh, what's going to happen is some of this money is going to help fund uh, some of the family to fly out there. And, uh, you know, and just for some extra support, uh, for the Lee family. So, if you can donate, donate, um, share it on social media, and help spread the word. Um. Yeah, and and let's uh, let's honor the memory of, of Weston. So, for this week's podcast, me and Chantel Taylor, the show's co-host, had a conversation with Alan Shibaro. Alan is an Army veteran. Uh, He served in a few different capacities uh, in the Army, and then he finished up his time as an Army Special Forces Green Beret. Allen kind of had an unusual childhood as his father was a contractor for the U.S. government. So he spent his childhood overseas and then eventually came back to the States and he joined the Army. He was very big in combatives, uh, jiu-jitsu. Kind of hit a crossroads uh, where he had to decide if he wanted to go pro as a fighter and or uh, become a green beret. Uh, so here is the conversation that we had with Alan Shibaro, and we discuss uh, some of his trials and tribulations and what he's a, what he was able to do to kind of come out of his dark space. And a huge part of that is his uh, the foundation that he works with. It's called the We Defy Foundation. and they they do a whole bunch of things, but the uh, the gist of it is that they're helping veterans. They're paying for veterans' uh, admission into jujitsu gyms or mixed martial arts gyms all across the country to kind of help them uh, get out of their dark spaces. And they've recently hooked up with the British Royal Marines over in the UK, and over there, they're gonna they're gonna create an organization that's gonna mirror the We Defy Foundation, and uh, it's really great stuff. So here's a conversation that I had with uh, Chantel Taylor and Alan Shibar. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host John Hendricks. I'm on with uh, Chantel Taylor, the co-host of the podcast, uh, former British Army combat medic. Chantel, up.
2: Hey, how's it going, John?
1: It's going good. Uh, we have a A guest on with us, a gentleman by the name of Alan Shibo. Alan, what's up, brother? How you doing? I'm good, man. How's it going? Excellent. All right, cool. So, um, Alan, you served for a number of years in the uh, military, uh, doing various different things. Uh, Can we talk about uh, a little bit of your upbringing? And then can we talk about uh, what kind of led you into the military?
3: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, actually it's pretty simple. Um, my father was a DOD civilian. I was raised overseas and, um, most of my younger childhood, um, I was in, um, uh, in Vicenza, Italy, an airborne country. So even as far as I can remember, you know, five, six years old, walking to school, I'd see guys, you know, jumping out of the planes and always be late for school. Cause I would just stay there until the entire chalk landed on the ground. and. <laughs> to me that was like the coolest thing ever yeah. um and uh it, it definitely you know growing up on base um on kazama italy um definitely played a huge role uh i always looked up to to soldiers you know and all the um you know it was airborne country so um they're very uh very very influential you know being in that surrounding um i care definitely a lot uh, um you know, throughout my life, my grandfather was in um, uh, everything from World War II, uh, Korea, Vietnam. Uh, retired after twenty six years. Uh, my father was in the Air Force. My uncle was in the Army. Um, so, large military family. Um, and even though I kind of sk- skirted around to not the, the, the typical army type uh, teenager, but uh, I was really big in the snow. Awarding and skateboarding at the time. But um, once I turned 19 and went back stateside, and um, it was kind of all those things where it just kind of clicked that seemed to be like the direction I needed to go. And um I ended up enlisting in Tampa, Florida. Um, odd thing was, is that uh, I wanted to actually be an interpreter or interrogator, one of the two. And since I spoke multiple languages, Recruiter was like, Yeah, no problem. We'll take care of that. And then I went to the, uh, um, you can see what my job was I signed up. They're like, Oh, we only have mechanics, you know. So I went to talk to the recruiter again. He's like, Ah, oh, don't worry about it. The, the two schools are right next to each other. You know, you sign up, go as a mechanic and tell them what your qualifications are. And they'll hook you up. They'll send you next door you know, be an interrogator. It's like, Oh, okay, great. So I signed the contract and talked to my parents about it. And I ended up mechanic for like four years. <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't really the way I wanted it to go, but yeah, but so at least, at least like you said,
2: at least you had something that was quite valuable. You know, do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. it could have been so yeah. much mechanic.
3: <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, the irony of that is, is that I was actually trained on cut fees, um deuce and a half. Uh, pretty much everything that um, within like, like five, six years after that, uh, they can entirely discontinue. Like you won't see those Chevy Blazers out anymore. Um, you know, you hardly see any deuce and a half out there. And uh, but, you know, it got me to Texas, which is pretty much the best part of that whole story.
1: <laughs> right. So then you stayed in or you did you get out or how'd that work?
3: Um so ironically enough I wanted to end up trying to I wanted to travel. Um so I put in for uh Korea um twice and got shut down. Um I put in for Kosovo, I put in for um Bosnia, anywhere I could go. Um it was basically at the end of it, so they weren't sending any more people. Um there wasn't anything really going on at the time. And I just said, ah, I'll just get out. Uh, jumped into the reserves and I was going to school at, um, Southwest Texas state down in San Marcos and around that same time frame is when I got into jujitsu. So the only, there was only one black belt in the state. And so I was figured, well, if I can go to college up North, I can do jujitsu as well. So I stayed in the reserves. Um, yeah, you know, at the time. You know, without having any exposure to to like any SF units or Rangers, any special operations of any type, you know, the the drill sergeant was the backbone of the Army. It was what everyone kind of aspired to be. Well, that's what I thought at least. So I ended up going into a drill sergeant unit and so I reclassed to artillery from being a mechanic. And yeah, I went to um, uh, drill sergeant school in South Carolina. Um, At the age of 24, which was another weird thing, because I was literally the youngest guy by like seven years. Yeah, I was going to say you've
2: um, you, you fitted a lot in. You know, you've done. If you think about all that the stuff you're saying, that's you're already quite like well seasoned in traveling and stuff. It's quite a lot to do. <laughs> by uh,
3: yeah, I, I don't like staying still. I got got to be doing something.
2: And that's you no know, the beauty um, of this station is we're not even halfway there, are we? It's, and there's so much more. You're you're twenty four now and you're yeah. just, you just know what I mean? So I'm not sure I'll let you carry on, Helen.
3: So <laughs> we're we're still in like nineteen ninety nine right now. Um so I ended up being a drill sergeant for a couple of years. I did some rotations up in um at Fort Sill, um uh, running some troops out there. Um uh ironically in July of 2001 I reenlisted <laughs> as a drill sergeant and then two months later 9 11 kicked off and they said, Ah, eh, we're going to send you on deployment." And I was like, "Outstanding. Where are we going? Afghanistan or you going somewhere?" Oh no, we're going to send you to Fort Sill for 2 years. Uh I was like, "No, you can go um no, you can forget about it. <laughs> I'm not going there." Uh, um and so I, I started the process to try to do a lateral transfer to get out of that contract, and that was the only way I could do it. So oh, the downside to it um is that I couldn't do a lateral transfer, I have to do the stay within National Guard or Reserve. So I had to make a um a monthly trips to a place called Grenada, Mississippi. Um and it's basically about six hours north of Jackson. So once a month I was taking, you know, doing three-day drills from driving from Dallas to Grenada and Grenada back, which was probably about a nine-and-a-half, ten-hour drive. Um, so managed to get into that unit um, after a nice paper battle work for, um, I don't know, about a year-and-a-half, almost two years. And, uh, finally got accepted into that unit, which was a uh, second of the 20th, um, special forces group, um, national guard unit and a drill there for like nine months, um, I went straight into 20th group and they had a, a, um, a training debt, a training detachment. Hmm. And so basically they would try to get you ready to go to the cue or go to selection first. And then you end up to and you go to the Q course. Um, but they, um, they're very, very proud of themselves. Uh, I wouldn't call necessarily tab protectors, but they, they're they like, oh, this is really hard. You're going to have to make this. And so month after month, I'm still passing all their PT tests and their land nav and everything else. And they're not sending me over there. And I was taking quite a hit financially making it. So. Well, um, it was either that or I was at the peak of my, my fighting career. By that time, that same year, I, I got my black belt in jujitsu in 2004. Um, and I was training partners with, um, which would end up being, uh, the next, uh, ultimate fighter that the tough champion, the one that had the TV series yes. was my training partner. Oh, and wow. so basically I had to make a, um. A life's decision at the crossroads whether i should go pro and mma or try to see where it goes with going sf um and literally within like three weeks i was about to just say you know what i i've been going to that unit for nine months kind of feel like they're wasting my time i'm just going to go ahead and go and take my shots and take my chances as being a, a, a pro fighter i got a call back they gave me a Literally two weeks later, I got a call back, and they said, "Yeah, we'll give you a selection date." <clears throat>
2: it's like they knew. Know, Alan,
3: to to the like they knew. <laughs> I'm so, sorry.
2: That's, that's almost like they knew. You know, they knew that you'd made a decision uh, to do something else.
3: <laughs> I, I I was probably giving him a hint, saying, you know, I'm kind of getting tired of this 20 hour yeah. drive a weekend. You know, just to walk around and be be treated as a a private again basically because I'm not you know the whole tabless bitch thing so I'm just like okay you know, I get it you know a little hazing I got it but but you gotta at least give me a chance to try it out so finally I got through and um, so I managed to make it through selection um, and then jump school um, and then I moved to uh, Fayetteville and the very beginning of 2005 um and i was in fayetteville all until i got out in 2011 so uh once i made it um i I was still on uh, national guard orders Um, i met some people when i was training people at the gym at the time i had absolutely no idea what a SIF was what these you know all these different acronyms were you know because they're entirely it's like civilian listening to acronyms from the military not having a clue you know what cif and cif is you know two, two completely different things um or I mean, it could be the px for all i know you know just different wide range acronyms that i had no idea um but i trained them anyway and they really liked it um so basically i got recruited right out of the Q course, which i come to find out later, it's not, um, it's not impossible, but it's very rare. Uh, um, and, uh, so I got assigned to third group. Uh, I signed into group one day I signed into group or to battalion the next day. And on my third day, I was on a flight and I met my team downrange.
2: Wow. Oh, wow.
3: And and did
1: you go? And how long did it take for you to go from being in third group to third group SIF?
3: Um, three days.
1: Oh, so that was oh that transition happened right away. Okay, okay.
3: <laughs> yeah, and that was that was the kind of scary part. Is uh, i never been deployed before, and not only did I go, go on a deployment, but I wasn't on an ODB. I literally went <laughs> Kent Solheim. Um, I don't know if you're familiar who he is. Um, uh, an, an amazing operator. Uh, he lost his leg. Um, and he was from third group in B two three. And basically I was re- his replacement, you know, trying to fill up the, the teams there. All right, I see. Um, so as soon as I lost, you know, they lost that man. Uh, um, and they, they needed a position. That's why they rushed me over to fill up the slot.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I see. I, I could see that. Yeah. So that's pretty cool, man. So, and and th- throughout the entire time as a Green Beret, you were still practicing jujitsu.
3: And uh, no, <laughs> um, that was the other downside of it. Um, basically, I had a uh, yeah, don't get me wrong, he's a phenomenal star major, um, but uh, Tim Kennedy had already started making his name within the SF ranks, you know, because he was still fighting MMA right. seventh group didn't have any problem with it. Um, mainly because he wasn't doing as many deployments and, um, it was kind of like the golden child in a sense, you know? Um, and, and the guy's, you know, a legit operator, he was legitimately in the Sith, and, you know, a legitimate fighter. So, um, but, uh, <laughs> uh the B two, three SIF had, uh, a different view on things and, so I got sat down right in front right of the summer major, and, and he used to play football. Um, I'm assuming probably the largest man position that you can have in football because he was about six foot five or six, about 265. Oh, wow. um, not a small guy at all, but uh, very strict, very fair. Um, definitely respected him a lot and had a really quick conversation. He said, You know what? We're bringing you in here. You're here to train the guys and get them caught up, you know, and, you know, basically um, how to detain people and um, immediate response drills, um, combatives with weapons, combatives with weapons. You know, this is uh, your job here. You're not to uh, compete. You're not to, you know, go train. You're not. So they wanted me completely out of that because they had kind of risked um, bringing me in so soon. And you know, because I, I had to go to Sephardic and Sodic and everything else, right? So yeah. they they didn't want to risk any of that. So basically, like you're you're an operator, you're not a fighter. Get that through your head, or just sign right here and we'll release you to another another unit. So did you,
2: Alan? Did you just um, going back a bit? Did you? How was it? Because obviously, having like been a combat medic and seeing how battlefield replacements turn up, especially if a guy that's been hit and you know severely injured. How, what was that like initially? Because that that can that's not easy just to step into a unit and say, hey, you just lost a really good guy that everyone obviously. Do you see what I'm saying? How was that?
3: Um, I'll be honest with you. Um, I was in country for about a month. Um, I really I was assigned to one team, but I, I really felt overwhelmed and uh, um, un. Not educated enough with with the minimal amount of experience and all the experience I had at the time was just training. Yeah. So even though I was assigned to um, ODA 356, um, I jumped on hey, do you guys, you know, we need a driver, I volunteer, we need a gunner, I volunteer. Yeah. W- whatever the position it was that people went out, I, I volunteered for it. Um, so just, one us- of the times was, I'm sorry.
2: You immersed yourself like is I get that.
3: And anyway, anyway, in every way that I possibly, I was driving, um, which was probably the scariest one because I I didn't really kind of correlate what kind of driving we're doing. Uh, five vehicles going about sixty-five miles an hour and complete blackout. Yeah. Um, and you know, about like. Literally about five, six feet apart, under fire, and I was 245 pounds at the time with my my own plate carrier, and I could barely steer the the wheel. Um, <laughs> so there was a lot of stressful parts about that. Just kind of like I just didn't want to screw up. You know, didn't want to be that guy. <laughs> you had one job, and you screwed it up. <laughs> so that was a big motivation not to screw yeah. up too. So. Um, but literally within that first month was actually, I didn't really get to to meet and, and, you know, develop a, a bond with everybody. One of the guys that I, you know, I had seen, you know, we started kind of developing something, um, was the first one that I actually seen lose, um, while I was in country was, uh, Justin Munchke. um, and literally I was one of the guys that pulled him off the uh pulled him off the bird, um, and brought him in. Um, that was that was a very hard reality first time seeing that. Um someone that I knew Yeah yesterday, not here today. Um and, and again being new at all this it made a huge, huge impact. Um And that's some baptism what,
2: of fire, you know, that's just to, to well, people they
3: appreciate. I mean, the, yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, the The baptism of fire for me was almost. Um, I want to say about five, six days later. Uh, went out on a mission, and um, I was literally support um, for one of the cells that was going. Um, Basically, if, if certain things happen, I was supposed to stay outside. If certain things didn't happen, I was supposed to go inside with the other guys. Um, so we're taking – we're on, on target road. Already hearing the pings on the vehicles. And, and again, for me, um, I got an overwhelming amount of feelings of you know, adrenaline, excitement, fear, anxiety, uh, stress, because you know, I don't want to let anybody down. And so there, it just, it was very, very overwhelming. My heart rate was probably at least two, over 200. Uh, um, and I um, stepped out of the vehicle and took three steps forward. I'll never forget this. And I heard a, a like someone had literally taken a whip, like an inch away from my ear and, and smacked it. And I saw a, um, a spark on the ground which was a little about four or five inches away from my foot. <laughs> and so around it come by and literally just missed my head and went straight by my foot. And it wasn't – um, it was strange because everything was chaos. There was like blurs of colors, and, and it wasn't that I didn't know what to do. I didn't know um, what of the things that I've been trained at do I apply to this situation. Does yeah. that make any sense?
2: Yeah. So
3: I I have been trained so much, I just uh, okay, do I run in with this cell? Do I do return fire to this? Or you know, do I go upstairs? With these guys are pull security in the vehicle, do I stay here? Do I just jump on this? Do I and then this is something I'll never forget. Um at the time he was uh, on the teams, he wasn't a team sergeant. But uh, Walker Stephen Booth. Uh, um yeah. <laughs> this guy comes running right past me. This is during the, this is 2007 and he's running yelling out. I'm going to come at you like a spider monkey boy. And just <laughs> laughing his ass off. And I just, and I was literally in shock going, this, this motherfucker is making jokes in a firefight, you know, routes going everywhere. But the weirdest thing happened almost instantly. The blur disappeared I could hear crisp sounds they weren't like I couldn't tell where they were coming from and there wasn't traces of light where I, you know where I, I was getting like confused there were not any halos there's nothing it was just everything had slowed down and I, I kind of like broke the ice in a sense and I was like oh I, I know exactly what to do I'm just when I jumped in with one of the cells or sort of turn fire to you know as we were going in and everything just kind of clicked, but it was all based off what Walker had said, because how can you, in a, such a manner like that, and he's still cracking jokes. Well, I guess it can't be that bad. And that was literally my, more Like I think it was my fifth or sixth firefight. And, and I'm so, so happy it happened that soon because that affected my career. And pretty much every single firefight after that.
1: But right. and and Walker at the time was already a seasoned operator. Oh
3: yeah, oh
1: yeah.
3: yeah. Um, I think that that was his. Uh, I want to say that was his fourth deployment. Um, and he had done two more after that. He did six total, I believe. And just so, hit, yeah. like- he he had a lot of.
2: And his name, you can almost like you can you can visualize his face. Do you know what I mean? That's what, he's one of those guys, isn't he? Just running around, you know. And people like him, are so, to every unit, I think they're like gold, aren't they?
3: Yeah, he honestly, at especially in third group, he's definitely one of those. You know, um, yeah, you know, legend status. You know, just because it wasn't. Not just his actions alone, but the actions that he had taken to help everybody else out, you know, always be there for you. Um, he was one of those guys, who, a lot of people are kind of concerned you know, have egos, and, you know, job preservation. And he, he, what do you want to know? You know, hey, just come to my house, we'll work on this. Um, hell, I'm one of the guys that, yeah, you know, I'll say this now. Um, my, uh, my first try through Sephardic, I screwed up. I I got booted from the course. Luckily enough, I got, you know, honestly, um, uh, 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 the commander said, you know, I just can't let you into this class. You are invited to the next one. I was devastated and Walker just comes, he literally, I didn't call him nothing. He shows up to my house and we start talking for a little bit and, you know, just kind of calmed me down. Next day, he calls me over. It's a Sunday. You know, he's got a family, a wife, kids. And, uh, you know, takes me out to the range that he had set up and coordinated with the other guys. And, hey, we got this over here. Puts up an entire stress test for me. And basically, he saw me every time that I was, like, missing off just a little bit. The next time was be more and more and more. He grabs me by the back of my plate, carrier, yanks me back anyone knows you know how Walker was. He always talked with a cigarette in his mouth. It was kind of the weirdest thing. but he was like, "What the fuck Shabar? What the fuck are you doing?" I was like i I thought it was a trick question I didn't I didn't know I was i like, am shooting you know, like every time that you're you're shooting now, you know you, you get frustrated because you get one shot off and that misses, and then the next one is worse and everything else after that' just jacked up. He's like, just focus in on that. Shake it off. You miss that shot. Once that, that round leaves the barrel of that rifle, there's n- nothing that you can do about it. So forget about that shot. and worry about the next one. Now, never, ever forget that. My next time through Sephardic had a, a 90, 98.9 percentile in shooting. Awesome. Um, but most of all, that that, that carried off into the rest of my life when I competed in judo and, you know, Olympic weightlifting, you know, if I missed one, I just shake it off, worry about the next one. So definitely a lifelong lesson.
2: This sound is going to sound quite crazy. So short in the interview, but it's, um, you can almost hear like a film. I know that sounds nuts. What do you, are you feeling that John? It's almost like you can visualize these scenes and some of them are, are, are obviously heartbreaking, but some are really full of comedy. Well,
1: and that's right. and it, it's it just kind of illustrated the way, you know, Walker just yeah. you know started telling jokes in the middle of a gunfight.
2: Exactly. And, um,
1: it's interesting um, because Walker is a pretty known guy, um, and then you know he he was tragically uh, he died in 2011, if I'm not mistaken, right?
3: Uh, uh, April 25th, 2009. Oh, 2009. Excuse me. Hmm. Wow. Well, Yeah, him and his wife, actually. He was one of the best motorcycle riders that I knew. And he was driving down the road. Um, It was actually... um, uh, What's his name? Uh, They were actually just going, like, actually right by their house. Um, And uh, the strangest thing is that Mike Glover actually saw him at a stop sign. Yeah, They waved. He's the soft survivor. Yeah. Um, and uh, they waved they said hey what's going on You know, we'll catch you up later he keeps driving like not even 10 minutes down the road and you know sees him in, on the road and there was some 23 year old that literally just pulled out and caught them both and him and his wife you know tragically died in, in North Carolina of all things
2: wow god I wasn't that. I, didn't, I didn't know that actually so that's that's really um almost makes it more that you should see about his life on film. You know, that's, yeah, that's really, really sad.
1: Yeah. And it's just, it's just yeah. crazy how that can happen that way. You know, a guy goes to, you know, six deployments as you know, a Green Beret, survives all that. And then, you know, something like an accident here in the States is, is what yeah. you know, gets him, you know.
3: Yeah, definitely, you know, he was my first senior uh, even when I switched teams, you know, he was, even he had his own team to run. Um, he literally made master sergeant by 11 years, took over his own team on his 12th year. Um, yeah. And he did the first year with a broken back because he refused to go get checked out because he didn't want to give up, you know, his uh, uh, team sergeant status. Oh, wow. Just, that's the person he was.
2: And that's the thing about guys <laughs> like that. They don't, like there's there's uh, there's groups of brilliant brilliant guys, and then there's people like Walker. And do you see what I'm saying? He's almost like um, he's one of those guys, isn't he? Yes. Yeah.
3: He's and in a category of his just, own.
2: You can't write that stuff. You know that stuff. Someone just does it, and yeah, that's right.
1: And it's it's interesting too because if I'm not mistaken, I think his father was a Green Beret as well, right? And grandfather,
3: third uh, generation.
1: Wow. Yeah. And, um, and I, I think if I remember correctly, I think his father or or his grandfather was a, um, a Mack V. Sog guy in, in Vietnam, right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Right. And, and, you know, and, and the audience will know because I've had a, a Mack V. Sog team leader on a couple of times. Um, so that, you know, they're familiar with uh what those guys were doing, you know, in, in Vietnam and, the, uh, the type of operations they were running and all that. Um, so it, it's just interesting how that passed down in their family, you know? Hey, so Alan, so you...
3: Hello? Hello? Okay, huh? there you are. Sorry. Yeah, I got you. Yep, can I make sure you're still there?
1: Yeah, so uh, how long after your first rotation in the SIF until the time that you got out of the military?
3: Um, so my, my first rotation was literally the soon assigned in a group. Uh, um, and then I think it was two and a half months later, I actually went back. Um, all my deployments were in Iraq. Um, so the f- first time was at, uh, at, area four in Baghdad. Um, the second one, we actually had gone to, uh, to crit doing operations over there, um, in the Taji area. Um, and then they had a a massive spike of insurgency in Missoul and something I never even heard of. We did a mid deployment deployment. So we literally just packed <laughs> up all our things that we, we had in Tikrit and and moved up north to Missoul um, to try to squash that you know that seventy percent rise in insurgency within a week. They're hitting all the checkpoints, they had V bids everywhere. Uh, um, so they sent us up there. Um, right after that, I uh, came back and, um, let's see, had about mm, six months, um, filled with like training and um uh shooting schools driving schools No, that's definitely one thing I miss um all the different training opportunities were definitely not a highlight of you know being back in garrison uh, then I left again in it seemed like August but it was uh yeah February, uh 2009 again or March 2009 and more was out there for like another four and a half months. And uh, bagged that area again.
1: So it was just constant rotations, come back home, train, rotate again.
3: Oh, yeah. It was good times. Always kept you up and going. Right. And, and for. That was actually after 2009, it slowed down.
1: Right, well, I think Iraq, right, Iraq right, 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 slowed down definitely. And for people who, who aren't familiar, can you talk about like briefly just what the SIF is?
3: Um, so basically, uh, within every group, uh, active duty group, first, third, fifth, seventh, and tenth, um, they each have one company uh, designated um, uh, strictly for direct act. Hostage, rescue are the primaries um, in the uh, counterterrorism and counterinsurgency realm. (laughs) Um, um, Everybody that's an operator there is at minimum Sephardic qualified, which is an advanced shooting and breaching school. And then uh, after that, most of them go through Sodic, which is the the highest level uh, sniper school that the army has. Um, and so there's mostly, mostly guys that show up there are very seasoned, um, spend a lot of time downrange, a lot of team time. Right. But the one thing that's difference between the, the direct action that like Keg does is, um, we don't have other, um, agencies, other sources that provide us with mission packages. We actually create our own handles, uh, handlers and, um, send them out and, you know, gather Intel, Humid, or uh, SIGET, and we actually create our own mission packages. So kind of like a um, self-sufficient, um, very s- small self-sufficient unit that's able to do these, you know, HVT hits.
2: So in some ways, that kind of, again, going back to how you actually initially went to that that sort of unit, that's and in, in, in some respects it was kind of unheard of for someone like you to go straight into that. That was a, do you know what I mean?
3: Oh, I completely, yes, absolutely.
2: You've completely like bypassed the normal, yeah. the normal track. Yes. And that's
3: nuts. And that was probably the, uh, the motivation for me to want to get any and all experience because all yeah, these definitely. guys had spent like an entire rotation being a gunner and another rotation being a driver. Um, and so anytime that my team that I was assigned to wasn't going out, I was volunteering for, you know, daytime missions, nighttime missions, didn't matter what it was, didn't matter the position. Yeah, I, I just felt I was so far behind. And the last thing I wanted to be was a liability. I Always wanted to be an asset to the team and never a liability. So especially that first uh, rotation, I, I sincerely lost count of how many missions I got because it was basically, hey, they need a guy. Oh, I'm there. And different teams, different parts um, of that area. Um, even did a, a two-week extend out in Diwania, um going after oh, no. some certain guys. Yeah, it was crazy.
2: And and the, and the worst of it is, and like maybe a little bit of a joke of it, you couldn't even draw on that those ten-hour um, drives that you were doing back in stateside, could you?
3: <laughs> oh, that, <laughs> <you're getting pissed>. <laughs> miserable. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Did you sometimes wish that you i know I know you would never clearly you're never gonna say that because that's probably the best job in the world, but did you ever just think why didn't I just stay stay doing something else?
3: Um, I'll be honest with you I'll never forget this. Um, you know one of the rotations that I had I remember uh, i mean it was an irony of this it was literally one of the longest missions. Um, that I had ever done. And for even most of the guys that were out there, they're like, this is like in the top three longest missions, because we, we did a, a a really good hit on a house. We gathered a lot of things and we got, uh, gathered a lot of people that meant a lot and they led to follow-ons. I'm like, Oh, well, if his brother's here and he has this, then we've got to go over there there. I'm never, you know, the, you know, two, three follow-ons, you know, most, you know, you do five, that's, that's crazy. Wow, and that we did nine that. follow-ons,
2: oh,
1: wow.
3: nine, <laughs> <crazy>. nine follow-ons. <laughs> I mean, it was almost an 18 hour mission and it was just, uh, and we we're running so short on people, space in the vehicles because we only had five strikers um i mean it's absolutely ridiculous i remember just getting back um yeah. it's like we left at um um probably like almost i want to say almost one o'clock in the morning um and then got back um literally like that and the next day around nine uh one of the vehicles even got stuck in the freaking desert you know the the strikers you know were in the sand Oh, uh, it was just miserable. Caked in sweat, dirt, stench. Um, didn't even realize I was like in some type of sewer water. So everything was stinking. Go to the shower hall. The only thing that went good that night, they actually had some Lucky Charms cereal there, <laughs> and grabbed that. I was the only one there watching TV, and who do I see? My training partner, Travis Luter winning the ultimate fighter. Oh wow. Getting 100 grand <laughs> and then guaranteed title fight in the UFC. Awesome. And I'm just sitting here going <sighs> <sighs> Okay. All right. Yeah. You
2: said that then I made the right choice.
3: <laughs> uh, that 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 was the time I'm going, maybe I should maybe I shouldn't have <laughs> done that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it that was the one moment that I kind of like I can't believe I'm here and like I could barely <laughs> lift up my arms and my legs. I, I just didn't even have enough energy to take my plate carrier off. Um, I'm literally like dragging one leg behind and, you know, have my breacher tool that's just bouncing off my leg because it's attached to my dummy cord and I don't want to pick it up. And, and I just look like <laughs> a mess. And there I see, you know, Travis barely breaking a sweat you know yeah but you know I'm I'm, I'm I'm happy to win you know it's good you know it's a lot of money and i was like oh my god he's just mr personality and i'm being very facetious he's a <laughs> great guy just <laughs> he has a personality of paint drawing
2: do, do, do you keep in touch with him now or are you still i'm sorry are you still friends you still um keep comms with him
3: Oh, yes, absolutely.
2: Yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. He has a place out in Fort Worth. Um, I run my place in Texas. This is like, we're not far away. Um, It's about almost a two hour drive. Um, But we have the same times and schedules. So he's easier teaching classes, so am I. So we don't get to see each other very often.
2: On the flip side of that, Alan, you know, and I know this is, but then he he did what he did. I'm pretty sure that he would. You wouldn't have minded having a go at what you did
3: uh no just maybe, Actually, just maybe not that day <laughs> we, we talked about that and i kind of described the <laughs> summit and basically he's a he's a creature of habit yeah and he's a it's he's a slave to his um he, he loves his ac yeah. um he, he loves not not you know having to wake up You know, with someone yelling, or in my case, when I was downrange, the most common thing was being woken up with a (laughs) flashbang. So, you know, he was like, "It looks fun for you, looks fun for me watching, but I'm not going." Right, and um,
1: so, and then it wasn't. So now, can we kind of transition to what you're doing now? Is you're you're still doing jujitsu, teaching jujitsu? But you also have a foundation that you are uh heavily involved with. Uh can we talk about some of that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um
2: and maybe how you got there, like your own, if you if you would, some of the stuff that made you want to do it. If you, you know. Uh
3: so um twenty uh two thousand fourteen. Um so I, I, I got off active duty, I was in the reserves very very, very briefly. Uh, um uh, here in Texas, they had a National Guard unit, and it just from going from you know B two three and you know and then going to a National Guard unit was really a very difficult adjustment that I couldn't make. And um, so I decided, well, let me go ahead and uh, um, you know try this out. Been wanting to open up school for a while. Uh, I've been saving up my money from all the deployments, and it's pretty much one of those uh, now or never type situations either i can go contracting which i had a couple offers for uh, um, or i can just give it a whirl and you know see where it takes me from there uh, um, and the odd thing was is that during that exact same time frame um, i'd been kind of working on a separate project and, and i initially managed to develop gun sites uh, for pistols and i managed to get two patents off that so, so two things happened um, almost exactly the same time i opened up my school and then I managed to get these pens, so another choice that I had to make was do I come try to pursue this these you know gun sites, or do I open up my school and Again, my main thing was trying to stay um, with the original plan um, so open up the school um, and the first couple years uh very very exciting uh very difficult um uh, pretty much, I lived in my, my office at my gym, uh, for about two years on the couch, uh, because I didn't have a plan B. I didn't want a plan B. I wanted this to work. And it was one of those things where, you know, I give it my all, all 100%. And then if I do fail, I can at least say I did, but I wasn't going to give up easily at all. Um, so during this time frame, um, I started realizing things um, and not understanding why. Um, I'd been on Ambien, I've been prescribed Ambien since 2006. Um, and this was all from from the Army when I was at Bragg. And they were given it to me to give me 38 at a time, take one every night. So I was taking one every night for years. Um, and then I got into Adderall which was actually the Adderall thing was a great thing. Um, well, as long as you stay within what they prescribe you. So coming out, um, not being used to um, and running my own business, still learning about that. I was coaching seven, eight classes a day, trying to teach 6 a.m., 10 a.m. noon, um, a kid's class, adult class, a second adult class in the evening, and then doing all the advertising, the marketing, the taxes, you know, the accounting, and the most experience that I have in the military, being a janitor. <laughs> um, bringing that up together, um, I started noticing some more patterns. Um, I had much harder time sleeping, and I was just thinking, well, it's probably just stress. Um, so I was going on from sleeping and you know, I used to always sleep at least five, six hours. to like four hours and then several months later and to, you know, about three hours. Um, and then, so I was like, well, you know, I'll take some, uh, like the over the counter Unisom with my Ambien and that should be a great combination, a little cocktail there. And it worked for a couple of weeks and then, well, you know, it says don't take, alcohol with this and it'll make you more dizzy great and that'll kick start the Ambien and the Unison so I started taking that and it turned in from one beer to 6 to 12 to 15 and I was sleeping maybe an hour a night then um, teaching um, and then the only other thing I could think of was working out so I started lifting um even more. Um, not just when I coached and was working with my students. Um, I was lifting two, three times a day, trying to like, you know, you know shake it off, get it out of your system, and um things just progressively got worse. Um, then I started getting injured uh, because I wasn't gonna sleep. Um uh, my mental acuity wasn't there, shit and uh, shady. Uh I've been trying to get a hold of VA. VA was well, this is before they even got busted out on anything. But it took me literally about three years to finally get into the VA uh, system. And um, what I didn't know was um, what I what I had been going through. Um, I refused to believe that you know I was depressed. I refused to believe I had PTSD because I did a lot of self thought and you know deep thinking and trying to figure out well. I don't regret everything, anything that i done. I have no remorse for the things that I've done. And it was either, you know, they're going to get it down or the guys to my left and right are going to go down. And I'm never going to let that happen. And so I didn't have haunting dreams about the faces and have, I didn't have any of that. So I knew at the time, 100%, I don't have PTSD. I'm just going through a phase. And that phase went from one year to two years, three years, Got worse. Um, and I just got to the point where I, uh, I didn't want to feel that way anymore. I just got tired of feeling that way. oh I don't know if they sleep deprivation after a while. The only thing you can think of is, all I want to do is sleep. I just want this to go away. And um, during that time frame, I was doing a, a short contract work out in Vegas. And I actually ended up having a uh, um, a herniation on my upper thigh that actually burst through the skin. And it was my first time ha- having surgery. So <clears throat> I uh, went immediately back home. Um, they put me under, which was my first time being under. I never never had surgery before. And uh, when I, I came to, it was... Um, it was a very, um, self-realization type moment that I had because I looked down, I had, had blood on my gown and didn't know where I was. I was disoriented and, and and just like anything else, if you're downrange, uh, we had one guy that got hit by a grenade, you know, everyone, RTB dropped their gear off and we were at the hospital. And we were staying at the hospital until they left for Germany or they passed. But we weren't budging. The entire team was there for for each other. And so when I looked around, when I was um, getting after surgery, I didn't see anybody. So the first thing that – this is 2014. So the first thing I I was um, asking around, I was like, hey, you know, where's, where's Clay? Where's Todd? Where's Walker? And so the, the nurses, um, there's a few males and a couple of female nurses started kind of chuckling and like, oh, you know, oh, we don't know who that person is. And, and to me, I was like, the only thing I can think is that I, I, I got, I did, did something, you know, cause I asked if I had gotten shot and they thought I was laughing or, or they thought I was joking and started laughing and I was like getting furious like, did I get shot? You know, what did I do? What did what happened? You know, what happened to the rest of my team? So the only thing that kind of went through my head was, I did something, which got my entire team killed, and, and that's when I really lost it. And they were—they wouldn't tell me where they were. Um, took six six nurses to hold me down um, until my roommate came in. He was a firefighter. And he was trying to see what was going on. And he kind of picked up on what was going on and said, Hey, you know, you got to calm down. And I started yelling at him saying, Hey, you know where they at? And I was like, no, no, they're in the waiting room. They're not allowed back here. Dumbass. Just calm down. So I was like, Oh really? He's like, yeah. So everyone, he's like, yeah. Walker's there. Clay's there. Walker had been dead for, he died like uh, that time, seven years before that. Um, or five years, excuse me. Um, But he was, like, just playing along with it. Yeah, 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 they're all back here. Don't worry about it. And your whole team's waiting for you. And, you know, you're good to go. So I went back under, and and I realized that was something that, that I finally got to talk to some counselors about, the uh, Survivors Guild. Um, I, And everything that I was thinking of is, you know, if I would have taken, you know, once step to the left instead of two to the right or taking three shots instead of one you know or or volunteered to go on this deployment instead of this one or something i could have done that would have allowed me to prevent you know the people that i was close to you know losing their lives and, and it always sounds uh, um unrealistic but at the same time, you know, I, in my mind, I could justify, you know, I could have been here or there and doing something and literally it was about, uh, and probably about like three months prior to that is when I almost took my own life. Um, and then I started seeking counseling and then I met, um, another guy that had been in B2, 3 as well as competing in jiu-jitsu in Chicago and his wife was working with Mission Twenty Twenty Two Aldahart, and that's Tom Spooner's nonprofit. Right. And once I, I was like, Tom Spooner, you talking about the guy from KAG? She's like, Yeah, yeah. I was like, That guy's got like forty-eight months of combat. Yeah. How is he? You know, he was someone that you know I ran missions with him. I mean, he's like Chuck Norris. <laughs> for special operations, you know what I mean? And so to hear that he had almost done the exact same thing, you know, he actually attempted it more than once. You know, I just didn't correlate and I was like, well, f- fuck, I, I'm sorry. Uh, I need to get a hold of him, you know, and figure out what's going on. And, you know, I finally got a lot of a lot of the help that I needed. You know, I got a lot of the assistance and got pointed in the right directions, you know, and so I started spreading mission 22 around the jiu-jitsu community that raises awareness which is a great thing um and then about a year and a half after that um uh, a guy came in as a triple amputee with his uh, six-year-old daughter and i'm like yeah i want to sign up my daughter and i was looking around He has kind of like the camel cap on with the velcro patch flag like, were you, you know, prior service?
0: And he's like, yeah, I was
3: in the 82nd.
0: I was like, oh, I was at
3: Bragg too. So started talking for an hour and a half, two hours. You know, the whole no shit, there I was stories. And um, we just kind of clicked it and, you know, it started getting along really well. And I asked him, you know, you ever done, you know, thought about training? He's like, well, you know, I tried it before and they were real happy to take my money, but they really couldn't care about. You know, if I had to adapt to things. And literally there and then, I said, You know, I don't have any experience uh, working with a triple amputee, but if you're willing to be patient with me, I'll be patient with you. So we started training together, uh, just one on one, not even in public. Um, and then, about after six months, he decided, Yeah, I'll try to give it a group class. He jumped in the group class. Did another six months and then said, you know what? I need a goal. Uh, all right. Well, here's a tournament coming up. And he's like, no, I don't want to do like a Paralympic thing. I I want to be treated less like anybody else. So he actually decided to jump in um, the International uh, Houston Open under the International Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation. Um, fighting incapable guys, both legs, both arms are all the same.
0: Wow.
3: And, um, he had, and hopefully his wife doesn't ever hear this podcast, but <laughs> he had, uh, he, uh, he was amputated right up, right above the knee on his right leg and maybe about half of his, uh, above the knee, about halfway up to his thigh on the other. Right. So one leg was longer than the other. So he kept telling his wife, you know, I keep turning corners. My leg gets hit. And literally, as soon as his wife lives, you know, waiting to, for him to get operated on the day, she goes talks to the doctor, and he's like, "Hey, man, don't let her know, but this way, when we start training again, I won't have to have like odd-sized legs. So I'm just going to cut this eight inches off, and it'll be so much better for rolling." <laughs> I, I could. I literally, I, I had no response whatsoever. <laughs> Good job. What are you thinking? Are you crazy? You're taking eight inches off your body, <laughs> so you could do a sport. Um, and literally within less than a year, he lost thirty six, thirty seven pounds. Uh, he's competed in two other tournaments. Um, uh, he, I mean, looks phenomenal, feels phenomenal, and so we decided, you know what, right, let's do something like this for everyone else. So what we do now is we um, we do two things specifically. Um we we started out with um creating training facilities. So you know there's a lot of politics in jujitsu because different flags, you have alliance versus Gracie Baja, um, you have I mean all these different ones. But the one thing that really worked out is that once it became to the veterans, they didn't care. So we actually started going, okay, you know, what we'll do is we'll make you a certified um we defy uh, training facility and we will start directing veterans to go train with you at your place as a form of therapy and we'll cover the, the cost of their tuition for a year. And if they keep going, we'll just keep paying it and for two uniforms and about so they can kind of get started fresh. Um, when we started, it was uh, 10 months ago or 11 months ago. Um, currently now we have over a hundred uh, affiliated academies training facilities in the. US. Um, we have hundred I want to say 120 so athletes that are in the program using it for coping with PTSD or um, their combat- related physical injuries. Um, and we got fortunate enough to have about five, five six weeks ago we actually partnered up internationally with uh, Sam Sheriff that created Re, uh, Reorg Jiu-Jitsu Foundation in England. Right. And you, were, and you
1: were working with the Royal Marines, right, out there?
3: Uh, um, some SBS, uh, Royal Marines, and the British Army. Nice. Yeah, amazing.
2: I'm still in shock from your story, by the way. And I know, you know, don't please don't um, – mistake like the silence for i just can't believe from from the sort of where you started where you are now and it's, it's not very often that i'm speechless so <laughs> there's people that can verify that but yeah just <laughs> i'm completely amazed i don't know what to say
1: Yeah, it's pretty awesome man to to
2: yeah
1: you know kind of make it through that adversity and and uh, come out you know and, and be able to help people and and do what you're doing man that's pretty cool
3: uh i honestly to me uh, uh, the strange thing is i uh, am um, I never thought going in, getting into you know jiu- school was you know, was gonna be my ticket to get rich um I was fortunate enough to be able to, to to knock out you know a couple of you know a design and a utility patent for these gun sites I'm try- trying to get up and going I'm using that as kind of like my retirement egg but yeah. um when it's when it came down to we defy after like just a few months and kind of sat back and just kinda of realized this all the shit that I've been sorry, all the stuff that I've been into, um <laughs> all all the people that I've lost that I cared about um all the ups and downs and you know I, I just like they say you know, a common saying in the army, you know, I love my job but I hate the army. Um I just couldn't stand the politics of it. Um, you know, three deployments Um, and, you know, a few hundred combat missions, um, some weren't great, some were hilarious. Um, some were tragic, some were horrible, you know, but it was a full spectrum of life, you know, that you got to experience in a whole nother way. And I don't, I don't regret any of it. Um, but that led me to what my true purpose in life is, which is this foundation. And I, I'm very grateful to have all those negative experiences that allow me to sincerely be involved in this without having a hidden agenda. And the same yeah. thing with Joey. Right. And, um, and the name of the
1: foundation, the We Defy Foundation, uh, is that derived from Nisif?
3: Um, actually, um, so Nudifion uh, was – is is actually what what they use uh for um the sif right so we decided just use we defy the english version one because it has a very strong um it's a very strong name um and we want them you know to defy all odds you know where people just kind of forget about them and and so it, it just seems very, very, very... very um, yeah, it's got a
2: really strong message. And you're powerful. right about... about um, it is to defy the odds, isn't it? And, and people that... I know people that are facing... I don't know. That's why maybe I was so silent, the way you were talking. I know people that are going through those those things at the moment and they're not quite out of the, the woods yet. But they... Um, and they do sometimes. They feel like they've got no hope. And, but there is, there's always hope.
3: And the one thing that we're definitely trying to get across is, um, we, we're not, we, and if you ever come to my school, you'll quickly understand we're not here to offer your sympathy. We're not here to offer you pity. We're not going to take things easy on you. Yeah. What what we're are do is we are an understanding group because even before I had We Defy, I had about 40% of my, my athletes that, that are training with me that are veterans. And the people that we sign on, they totally had this understanding is that we're not going to you know, pity you because of what you do. We're not going to give anything to you. What we're doing is providing you an opportunity
2: yeah.
3: to work on yourself to get yourself better. No one else can do it but you And because that's the one thing I don't want anyone to ever have that misunderstanding is that like, Oh, you have PTSD. I'm so sorry. You know, and we don't want to be those dicks. that just say, Oh, you know what? Shut up. You got PTSD. Go lift some weights. You know? Okay. Neither one of you have a a clue what's going on. Um, and, and that's the main thing is, you know, we're providing an opportunity for you, to provide to therapy for yourself and the, and the combination of it, you know, of being on a daily basis around a group of people that, you know, uh, it's a dynamic, the most dynamic form of meditation. Cause when you're getting choked out, you're not thinking about your bills. You're not thinking about your boyfriend, your girlfriend problems. You're getting freaking choked. Nothing else really matters in that world right now. So that that time frame that you're actually training, you literally lose yourself in what you're doing. Yeah. You're, you're, you're getting a phenomenal workout. Most of the guys are like crawling out, but they feel great. They feel like this, this sense of euphoria. And then they go back and they have all that stress just peeled away off of them. They go back to their family and, and they're like a different person, you know, and then um, they're losing weight, and then like, well, I want to do something. i was like, oh, watch compete? Well, I'm not ready. Well, set a goal. You know, six months. Let's do this. And so now they're setting goals, and it transfers to every other aspect of their life. That's the craziest part. It really does. Yeah, you know, they and they they take that same map that they created and something that is a hobby for for you know for most people for some people like myself, it's a lifestyle and they apply it to the different things that they're doing in life. You know, I am going to make, you know, you know, regional, you know, manager of whatever they're doing. Um, one guy said he's going to finish, finish college. Hey, he did it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but before he had quit repeatedly because quitting is so easy to do here, you're going to get, your balls in a vice if you, st- if you skip training. People will go on Facebook, create memes from you, you know, oh, you know, I, if you just <laughs> oh, go on my page, you'll see a whole, you whole bunch of stuff. Feel
2: like, um, <laughs> do you feel like a lot of that is, you know, the, the one thing that everyone does when they leave the military is, is that sense of belonging. You're almost creating that club again and it, it, that club is not sympathetic. You know, that club, they'll always be there yes. for you. You basically, and I think that that, that's what it sounds like to me. And it's That's that's something that's missing from these, these places. And don't get me wrong, they do great work, but these places that offer treatment, you know, there's one thing that soldiers are not and that they don't lack. We don't lack motivation. So uh, from what I can hear you are saying, it's almost like you, you've tapped into that, but maybe, you know, whether you want, wanted to or not, but that's, that's one thing that someone's not going to lack. So, yeah, it's just quite inspirational, isn't it?
3: Yeah, and, and if you, just any type of physical activity. You want to be better at it. We'll get yeah, so what? You, you got to fuel your body with the right things. You can't even eat that shit, spit, yeah. that junk food yeah. anymore. You know, and these guys, you a know, blinky. that were literally going down and drinking a fifth of Jack a night. Yeah. You know, they're showing up the next day, and they're I had guys puke repeatedly, and I was like, man, you know, I, I guess you got, got a cold or something. You're sick. You know, and I was kind of looking at him, like, and I'm just kind of raising my hand, like he's drinking something. And I was like, "Yeah, you got you sick or something?" He's like, "Yeah." I'm like, "Guess what? I'll see you here tomorrow. Try doing it without it tonight." And because he was rolling so hard, he literally went home slept like a baby for the first time without drinking any alcohol. Shows up the next day. His his not only did his demeanor change, but physically, his skin tone had changed. Yeah. It wasn't like a palish paste, you know. He actually looked almost human. And then he rolled out I was like, "Look at that. We just rolled for 20 minutes straight. Yesterday, you puked in my corner, which I had to clean up. Thank you by the way, after 6 minutes." <laughs> you know, and they they see it's a it's a physical change that they're uh, that's tangible. They can see it, they can feel it. And and that I think is probably with the most thing because everyone wants that instant gratification well guess yeah. what <laughs> that was the one example that I can I can honestly give that's it's as close to instant you know uh, that you can get
2: and how when you came over here to the uk you know how was it all received were they quite excited it I imagine they would be oh
3: so uh, Sam sheriff was the main contact I have with the uh, 30 commando um, 30 Marine, 30 Marine commandos, um, oh, yeah, three and command- we've been corresponding yeah. for a while.
2: Yeah.
3: Yes. Um, yeah. and I truly, um, and, and the weirdest thing is, is that he brought us out there to the barracks. Um, we talked for a long time. We had, um, and very, very similar, extremely similar lives. Um, you know, he was, you know, in a, you know, 30 Roman commandos, I was, in, you know, green berets, uh, with third group, uh, he'd been to combat multiplying with lost people. That's a common thing going yeah. a little bit more deep. Um, he had, you know, lost his father to cancer. Um, I had lost my father to cancer just like a month before I went, went there. Um, and then, you know, he had one friend of his who was a triple amputee and he was a pt specialist or a you know uh a physical trainer within the marines i forgot the name though but um he basically retaught him how to swim um and then was trying to get him in jiu-jitsu which sparked you know getting contact with me yeah so we had all these things that were just um literally just almost identical wow and he was he was very passionate about it. It just didn't know, okay, well, how how did you do this? And I said, here, and I, literally, let's get together. And I know you're in London, but I'll find a way out there. And um, another um, veteran named Chris Hoyter, um, who's one of the dirty dozen, I meaning he was one of the first non Brazilian jiu jitsu black belts in history, um, coordinated this trip. I said, let me just tag along, I'll pay my way. So I got to meet them. We spent hours just talking about logistics and different things they could do and how they can branch out. Um, they had such an overwhelming amount of support, not only from from the outside, but from within uh, within the command um, So it was very easy to kind of like, okay, well, here's where I set up for this and this is what I did for that. Um, and and we, we're still corresponding. At least on a weekly basis, um, and, and trying to create projects for the future, you know, different things that they can do, do, we can do, and um, it's phenomenal partnership.
2: Um, yeah, and I'm I'm so I'm so pleased that you've that you've got here already. You know that it's already here because it is. It's just hearing about it and and knowing just the the past couple of weeks, the people that I've been chatting to, I know that something like this is going to be. Um, I don't know. It's, it's almost like it's fate. It's, it's a strange. I'll tell you about it when you come again. But it's the strangest thing. But it's amazing. It's a good thing.
3: Uh, truly, absolutely. I I can't agree with it more.
1: Yeah, it's all good stuff, man. So, Alan, if if uh, anyone listening is interested in uh, checking you out or or checking out the foundation, uh, where can they go to do that?
3: Uh, yeah, very easy, actually we have a, a website up right now. It's under we defy foundation.org. Um, if you uh, find me on Facebook or uh, Instagram whatever, I can easily redirect you to that. Um, I don't I'm not sure if they have Facebook set up. I know Instagram set up for Sam for the, the uh, British counterpart uh, on reorg Foundation or RMBJJ, the Royal Marines, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, and, and again, we, we pull together some of the best talent in the nation and coordinate them all. And we do seminars um, in all these different various places. The money that we make um, goes straight back to the foundation. Um, I literally just got back from Philadelphia um, last week. Um, where we did a fundraiser for mission 22 we had some of the nation's top black belts um, so it's it's a fun get together um, people love coming out um, we got one coming up May 20th in Fort Lewis um, so a lot of different ways of getting involved um, whether it be corporate sponsorship individual just want to get a shirt um, I'd love to send you guys you know some apparel and hat whatever you guys need uh, I have to call just give me all your information I'm more, more than happy to send some out
1: awesome yeah yeah for sure man
3: um, I wanted to ask you
1: something are you do you know a guy who's a, a former 18 Delta and I believe he was a fifth group siF guy uh, named Mark Belden mm. he, he, I know he was an instructor at Sephardic uh, I'm
3: not sure exactly when though but so the, the weird Thing is, is since I got like recruited straight out of the Q course to the SIF, and the our SIF company wasn't even with Third Group; it was off base. We had our own little compound. So unless I went to schools with these guys, you know, training deployments, or they were in the SIF, I don't really know that many people, even from my own group, um, unless they did Jiu Jitsu as well. <laughs>
1: Okay, yeah, I asked because he's like a like big combatives guy. He's out in um, where is he at? Is he in Utah? I forget where he's at. He's he's out somewhere like on the West Coast, um, and he he does like he's big on combatives and everything. And uh, so I, I was
3: just now curious. I do know um Don um uh, Donnie Bowen um he actually. Has a place right outside of Campbell. He it was, it was in fifth group, sixth at A One Five. Great guy. He's actually a we To Five affiliate as well. Um, has a place like right outside of uh, Campbell. Um, yes. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, hey, Alan. I'm to gonna check someone's Facebook uh, for a while.
2: I'll get your um, details because until like, obviously for when you come back over to the UK and then maybe get to meet up when you do.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Be pleasure.
2: Just to hear more of your story. It's uh, yeah, I'm, I'm completely feel quite blown away actually by that, that story.
1: Yeah, definitely. It was, it was great talking to you, man. Um, I just want to thank you for taking the time and coming on here. Um, <laughs> you know, so I'll put this up on uh, Wednesday coming up. Um, okay. But before it goes live, uh, if you can just send me all the links and anything uh, you'd like me to highlight and uh, I could throw it up on my website and up on social media and
3: all that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you both. Um, Thanks. This is, this is a huge, huge honor. Um, yeah, I know as many people we can reach from there and, and that's the main thing we're trying to do is just let people know that there is something out there that you can actually do on a daily basis for days, weeks, months, years and all over the nation. You know They're pretty much using that as kind of like every affiliate to, hey, I'm going to go on business to so-and-so. Does anybody in Fairfax, yeah, we got Defy Foundation there. Go over there and they, they welcome all in and with open arms and so it's actually taking them Another, you know, course of action where uh, it's gone above and beyond what we ever thought, you know, that that camaraderie would be like. So, yeah, but, uh, uh, you know, absolutely. Thank you so much.
2: No, thank you.
1: All right, brother. Talk to you. Alan really bounced back from his survivor's guilt and his bout with uh, PTSD, and he did that. Uh, a lot of it is. He credits to his uh, jujitsu and, and his willingness to, you know, tackle the issue and accept it and, and work on it. And, you know, I'd hope that anybody who's listening, any veterans, uh, combat veterans who are going through this, you know, in the UK, in the US, uh, Australia, any of the 5 our nations, you know, you, you can accomplish this. You can overcome it and... You know, Allen is is proof of that. And and so are so many other veterans, you know, combat veterans who had gone through a a whole lot and are are now, you know, on their feet and and doing well. So, uh, you know, with that, we'll close out this week's podcast once again. uh, Rest in peace to First Lieutenant Weston Lee, who was killed on April 29th, uh, just outside of Mosul when he stepped on an IED. Um. A good friend of Weston's, his social media on Instagram and Facebook is Sir jumps a lot. He created a you Caring crowdfunding page for Weston. You can go to YouCaring.com and just search Weston Lee, W-S-T-O-N-L-E-E, Lee, and the page will come up. You can donate if you can, uh, share it on social media, and um, I also have the link for it on my website on the podcast notes for this episode. You can check it out there. Uh, My website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook account is FB Recon. My Instagram account is IG Recon. The second account is Black Ops Matter. And I'm also on my friend Chantel Taylor's account uh, from time to time, which is uh, mission underscore critical. Check it out. Uh, Chantel's Facebook account is Battle One, The Memoir of a Combat Medic in Afghanistan. She wrote a very good book uh, and it's called Battle One, The Memoir of a Combat Medic in Afghanistan. You can get it anywhere books are sold. Uh, Amazon.com is probably the easiest place to do it. Um, Share these episodes with your friends and family. Subscribe to us uh, on iTunes. uh, And that way it'll help us stay at the top of the Government and National Categories. And um, we have some good episodes lined up for you guys. We'll see you in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.